Okay, so in today's class, we'll be considering the topic of textual criticism. So last week, Pastor Ron touched on inerrancy and communicated to us that we have, or we can have assurance that we possess God's word. We know this by looking at the consistency of God, one, um, his own intention to make men wise unto salvation leads us to the conclusion that he will never allow scripture to become so corrupted that it can't bring us to that end. And what is that end? The end of making one wise unto salvation. Okay. In other words, we can say that the text of scripture is always sufficiently accurate or accurate enough not to lead us astray. Secondly, we can have assurance that we possess God's word by the discipline of textual criticism and our ability to recover the wording of the autographs of the autographer, which is the original writing. Um, and that second point is what we'll talk about today. Um, okay, so... <clears throat> So last week, or two weeks ago, I talked about the Greek New Testament and how it has 140 words about, and there are about 400,000 variants within the Greek New Testament. So the Greek New Testament has about 140,000 words, and there are about 400,000 variants in the Greek New Testament. And we define a variant as any place in the manuscripts where there is a difference in wording, including word including word order, omission, or addition of words, even spelling errors. All those are variants, um, or count as a variant. We have so many variants, I said, because we have so many manuscripts, around 5,800. So I think it's 5,864, something like that now, different manuscripts that we have. So we'll sort of walk through this um, and this idea of textual criticism. So, uh, what is textual criticism? On your handout, that's the first point there. What is textual criticism? Textual criticism can be defined as the discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original no longer exists. The discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original no longer exists. So there are other secondary goals of textual criticism as well, but this is how it has been classically defined, or historically defined. So uh, to get some help and further explain this definition of textual criticism, I've called a friend of mine, Dan Wallace. He's not really a friend of mine, but we would probably like each other if we knew each other. He's a brother in Christ. Um, I've been referring to Dan Wallace here and there while teaching through uh, this Bibliology Sunday School class. In my opinion, he's one of the leading textual critics, um, and he just has some really good stuff on this topic. So Dan Wallace, a little short bio, uh, Dan Wallace is a senior professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He taught there for more than 28 years, and he's the executive producer of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. The Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. So in other words, 
when you want to talk about manuscripts and textual criticism, he's definitely one of the ones you want to go to. Uh, this is just his area of expertise. So with that brief introduction, um, we're going to show a short video um, and just sort of get a basic uh, understanding and maybe clarification of textual criticism, as explained by Dan Wallace. Let me have somebody hit the lights for me, please. Continue here. All right, so <clears throat> I want to uh, move on from that to another important part of textual criticism, and this deals with uh, what's the second point in your list, an embarrassment of riches. So this looks at what we have compared to um, other ancient documents, the evidence that they have for those versus the evidence we have for the Bible. So how does the New Testament manuscripts and the evidence we have for those New Testament manuscripts compare with other existing historical documents? So as far as the Greek manuscripts, over 5,800 have been cataloged. The New Testament has translated um, early on, and the, the New Testament was translated early on in other languages, Latin, Coptic, uh, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Gothic, etc. So including all these languages, we actually don't know the total number of manuscripts that we have. But we know that we would definitely have over, well, it would be actually tens of thousands, not just 10,000, not just 20, but, ten, but tens of thousands of uh, manuscripts total. So again, the Greek manuscripts alone total over 5,800. But if we add all the manuscripts we have and all the other languages, then the total would be over 20,000. So this is what we have to look at when we're trying to get back to the original. That's ridiculous. That's a lot. With that being said, we also have to remember that most of our manuscripts come from the second millennium AD. So from the year 1001 to 2000, closer to the beginning of that. And most of our manuscripts don't include the whole New Testament. So a fragment of a verse is still considered a manuscript, right? So even fragments are considered manuscripts. But it is interesting also to consider that the average size of the New Testament manuscript is still over 450 pages. So a fragment is considered a manuscript, but the average manuscript that we have is over 450 pages. So we have a lot of evidence, okay? So we have a huge number of manuscripts. In addition to that, we have the quotations of the New Testament. So these quotations of the New Testament come from church fathers. So who are the church fathers? I know that sounds uh, strange and Roman Catholic and ancient, but let me explain. The early church fathers fall into three basic categories. So you have the Apostolic Fathers, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, before Nicene, before the Council of Nicaea in 325, and you have the Post-Nicene Church Fathers. All of these are considered Church Fathers. So I'm going to the Church Fathers and making a point that we have an overwhelming number of manuscripts, but we also have quotations from the Church Fathers, some who would have lived in the same generation as the Apostles. Okay? So that's further evidence that we have. Um, so we have the Apostolic Church Fathers. These were ones like Clement of Rome, 
they were actually the same generation as the apostles, like I just mentioned, and were probably taught by the apostles. And, and this included a group, um, so included in this group would be Polycarp. Some of you have heard of him. Polycarp, who was actually very likely a disciple of John. So these are men in that they're quoting from the New Testament, and we have their writings, and we add those to what we have to try and get back to the original. Um, uh, so we have the, the Apostolic Church Fathers, and we have the Anti-Nicene Fathers, who came after the Apostolic Fathers, but before the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, or AD 325. So this would, um, these are guys like Irenaeus, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, uh, they are all anti-Nicene fathers. And then you have the post-Nicene church fathers who came after the Council of Nicaea. Augustine of Hippo, Chrysostom, Eusebius, who actually wrote the history of the church uh, from the birth of Christ to AD 324. All of these, those men are all the church fathers. So I said before that we have a huge number of manuscripts, over 5,800 Greek manuscripts, but in addition to that, we have the quotations of the New Testament by the church fathers. So to date, this is a ridiculous number, but to date we have more than one million quotations of the New Testament by the church fathers alone. So if we wanted to, if, if we got rid of all the manuscripts and all the languages, Georgian, Syriac, Coptic, and the Greek, we could duplicate the whole New Testament several times over based off the quotations of the church fathers alone. That's apart from manuscripts. Again, we have a ridiculous amount of evidence that helps us to get back to the original. Um, that's just, it's, those numbers to me are amazing. More than one million quotations. Um, they cared about the Bible, <laughs> so they quoted it a lot. Um, Again, New Testament scholars have, as Dan Wallace put it, and I love the way he puts it this way, we have an embarrassment of riches compared to the data that the classic Greek and Latin scholars have. We have an embarrassment of riches. So the, Afri the average classic author's literature, if, um, if, if they were to sort of be gathered, um, and they, they would have, so you have a lot of, uh, ancient writings, um, you have Greek writings, you have Roman writings, you have um, Athenian writings, these ancient writings. The average number of those writings, or the average copies that they have for those writings would be 20. So the average ancient Greek, Athenian, Roman writing has 20 copies to work from to get back to the original. This is compared to the New Testament, the Greek, which has over a hundred, uh, over a thousand times the manuscript records. So again, we have an embarrassment of riches. Not only this, but the existing manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after he wrote. So again, on average, New Testament 5,400. 20,000 if we consider all the languages, manuscripts to work from as evidence. Average ancient writing, 20 copies to work from as evidence, and the first copies would have been 500 years after the original was written. It's an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> Don't be thrown off by the Bart Ehrmans or someone who will come to you and say, well, you can't believe your Bible because 
it's uh, this old or you really don't have any evidence? Absolutely not. <laughs> we have an overwhelming amount of evidence to look at compared to any other ancient writing, any other. Nothing even comes close. So again, the average was written, there's a 500 year gap between the original of any other ancient writings and um, those copies. For the New Testament, it's only a few decades until we have our earliest copies. So let's, uh, uh, an, an example of this. I'm thinking if I should, if I have time to go through this, but an example of this. So the best classical author, if we're thinking about existing copies, is Homer. So Homer is the Greek poet who wrote uh, the ancient Greek poems, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, very famous uh, poems. Uh, he's basically considered a pool of information for Greeks about their gods. So manuscripts of Homer are less than 2,400. So this is on the high end. The average is 20. This is an exception on the high end. Uh, he has about 2,400 manuscripts compared to the New, the, the New Testament manuscripts that are, again, in the tens of thousands, if we're considering all those languages together. Now, um, I had a second video that uh, is about 16 minutes, but I'm not going to show it. I want to um, actually walk through some of these slides and uh, talk about this stuff uh, myself to sort of try and communicate it, because I think it's important. Um, can y'all see this? It's super tiny. Um, I'll read it for you. <laughs> so that first category, all to the left, histories, uh, men in history who have written. Um, the second column here, is that a column or a row? Column. Uh, oldest manuscripts, and then the number of manuscripts. If I had, James White has like a pointer thing. I don't have one, so I'm just going to have to lift my arm. Lazy me. So history. So Livy, uh, Tacitus, uh, Satanius, Theosudides, uh, Be I think that's how you, I practice this, but I slotted it. Um, Herodotus and the New Testament. So those are the histories. So Livy, um, Herodotus, Tacitus, these are um, historians in ancient Greece, um, Rome or uh, Athens. The oldest manuscripts from Livy are from the 4th century. That's the first one at the top. Tacitus is from the 9th century. Um, Suetonius is from the 9th century. Uh, they have, Livy has 27 copies to work with to find out what he originally said. Um, Tacitus has three. On the high end, Suetonius uh, has around 200. Um, Herodotus has 75. The New Testament has 5,800. 5, Actually, this is an old PowerPoint. So again, I'm beating a dead horse here, but I want to show you how the New Testament compares to ancient writings. And these are writings from which we understand what happened in history. We teach these in colleges. Professors teach these as dogmatic truths. This is what happened, based off of 20 copies. Yet we come to the New Testament, which has 5,800, and we say, ah, I don't know about that Jesus. It's ridiculous. The unbeliever, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've, I've been digging through this all week, and I'm all hyped up about it. The unbeliever has a problem with this, because... 
if they hold to Herodotus and what he said, and they teach this, and this has to be true, when you come to the New Testament and you have all these, just, this, this, just, this is just evidence. This is not uh, the Holy Spirit. This is just evidence that we have for these things. You have a problem because this says something about a real Jesus who truly lived, who said real things, who truly died, and that says something for whether or not the way you're living will be accounted for before a holy God. It's easy for the, the unbeliever to just reject it, right? Because these other writings, they don't call your morality into question. They don't put you on the stand and say, have you broken the law of God? Have you sinned against a holy God? They don't. And so the believer, the unbeliever can suppress this truth yes. and unrighteousness and they further store up wrath against themselves in the day of wrath. There is evidence here, and it's clear, and we have it documented. This is a science. It's documented, and we have it there. Uh, those other writings, but the other Right. What were the writings of? Was it religion? Was it, what were they writing about? It was all sorts of things. So many were... Um, Wars and things that happened in certain regions, uh, wars that had taken place. Um, some were religious. Um, some were both as they were writing of like a certain siege that took place or a time in, in history, maybe 20 years of something happening. They would often hit on a lot of different things. It wasn't their intent to say, hey, this is going on here. Um, there's a store over here that says this or that's selling this. But as they wrote these things, these were men who were just sort of, um, for lack of better terms, traveling on a road, um, let's say maybe going to war, and they're just journaling or writing of events, uh, generally that, that happened. So I, again, just to play demographic, yeah. what, what would be their motivation to have such an extensive amount of copies, whereas in the New Testament, there is a motivation to increase the amount of copies, because it's, it's the religion, <laughs> right? So yeah. I mean, that's what they're... Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's a good question. Um, and I'm trying to recall uh, how Dan Wallace worded that, but I'll just put it into my own words. Um, there is a, I think, a greater motivation for the New Testament writings and scribes uh, documenting these things. And even Bart, Bart, Bart Ehrman would say that. But the issue is not necessarily um, a motivation behind um, writing them. The issue is that <laughs> apart from the evidence for these things, if the, if, if the New Testament only had, I don't know, let's say 100 or 200, we still come to it and out of a uh, disposition we have, we look at it and we discount it. We wipe it off the stage as viable compared to other writings. Now that's, I, I think that just gets at a, a hard issue. But if we're just dealing with the text itself and the numbers itself, there is more motivation to copy the New Testament because it's, it's the word that's there. Um, but when you drive deeper, I think the issue is an issue of the heart that says Herodotus is more to be believed than the New Testament because of what it says. And I, I don't think the issue is the manuscripts. I think it's an overwhelming embarrassment of riches, but I don't think the issue is the manuscripts. I think it's the heart of the man. But to answer your question, yes, there would have been 
more motivation to copy the New Testament because it's the word. Okay, I know we have more questions. I'm sorry, but I have to finish this. <laughs> I need to be done by 10.15. I do. I want to respect your time. Write it on a note card. Yes. <laughs> oh, let me mention that again. In the back, we do have note card. We do have a box and we have note cards beside that box. Write your question down and we'll try and walk through that when we come to the question and answer section, which will be in a few weeks. Okay, I got to keep going. Good question, though, Robert. Um, okay, so to understand, so we're, we're on the, uh, I think the second point on your note, note sheet, the history of, the history and methods of textual criticism. Is that two or three? Three. The history and methods of textual criticism. So to understand the approaches of New Testament textual criticism, it'll be helpful for us to talk about the history a little bit. So in the first three centuries after the Greek New Testament was written, the text of the New Testament developed freely, so to speak. What I mean is scribes made copies for other existing copies, and soon manuscripts followed suit with the textual variants or readings of other manuscripts. So an example of this. Um, I'm a scribe. I copy John, and I misspell a word or change a phrase. Uh, Jeremy copies from my copy. His copy takes on the same uh, misspelling or word changes that my copy took on. So, uh, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm just picking people. George copies Jeremy's copy, who copied my copy. Jeremy copied my uh, misspelling word change. George copied Jeremy's misspelling words change. Soon we have a manuscript family. All of us have the same sort of um, changes in our, in our copies. So when I say manuscript family, that's what I'm talking about. So um, we're all sort of in the same manuscript family having the same reading that I wrote when I copied from John. Um, for example, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6.13. Turn to Matthew 6.13 really quick. We're going to get into the Bible now. That's what y'all been waiting for. About time. <laughs> About time. <laughs> Matthew 6, 13. Okay. Some manuscripts have the words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That doxology at the end of the Lord's prayer. You know the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A lot of your copies will have like a little note there, um, and it says earlier, or some manuscripts have that, that ending, that doxological ending. That's one place where, you, where they attribute this to a certain manuscript family, some having it, some not. Um, Matthew 5.22, just on the page to the left there, probably, in your Bible. Matthew 5.22. And Matthew 5:22, some manuscripts, in some manuscripts, Jesus condemns the person who is angry without a cause. Mine doesn't say that. It says, "But I say to everyone that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment." Some manuscripts say everybody who is angry with his brother without a cause. That's attributed to manuscript families. They don't all say the same thing. Or John 5, 53 to 8, 11. 
or Mark 16, 9, 22, John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Um, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery, or the end of Mark 16, uh, verses 9 to 20, um, those are attributed to manuscript families. They don't all say the same thing. Um, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have the story of the woman caught in adultery. This is attributed to manuscript families. The earliest manuscripts don't have those passages, all those passages, passages I just mentioned. So manuscripts that had certain readings became more common in different places. And that's how we get what are called manuscript families or text types. Y'all following me? Okay. So jumping forward about 1,100 years, in 1516, a Greek New Testament was prepared and printed by a man named Erasmus. You heard his name before, Erasmus? It was a rush job. It only took about six months to prepare and print. Erasmus, this is important, Erasmus based his text off of six to ten manuscripts that were available to him. Six to ten. He even had to fill in missing parts from the book of Revelation. This same basic text was later published by other popular printers. And 16, a 1633 Bible print edition of what Erasmus did, his original work, was released. And in that Bible, it had the preface, the pre, the preface Textum ergo habes nun cap omnibus receptum, which can be translated, the reader now has the text that is received by all. From these words, we get textus receptus. This means the received text, okay? This text is actually the foundation for the King James Version of 1611, which was the main Greek text until the publication of the English Revised Version in 1881, okay? Later scholars would come along and they would actually question the manuscripts that Erasmus had, which were the foundation for the King James Version, saying that those manuscripts were edited texts and that those readings are inferior or not as accurate as other manuscripts or font families, um, found specifically uh, in the Alex Alexandrian texts, which I'll talk, to about, talk about in a little bit. Um, so, a group of scholars basically came along and they said, huh, we have some other families here, manuscript families, and I think they're stronger than the text that Erasmus used based on how old they were, based on their consistency, based on just having more evidence. And they questioned Erasmus's text. This is how we get historical textual criticism. Examining manuscripts and manuscript families to try and determine the original wording. So textual criticism, far from being bad and negative, is actually very good. It's a good thing. It serves us well. Um, that gets at the King James only controversy, which I won't have time to get into. But um, <laughs> it's there <laughs> for anybody who was looking for me to say that. King James only controversy. <laughs> it's, uh, we can talk about that later. Okay, so fourth, how do we get back to the original reading? So I was trying to question these in a way that I would, okay, I would want to know, how do we get from what we had then to what we have now? How do we get back to the original reading? Um, and so I'm going to lay out two things with the time I have left. Um, internal evidence and external evidence. Um, 
So we're going to go to the school of textual criticism. This is a very basic, you know, base level understanding. But um, I think it's good for us as not textual critic scholars to know and be able to uh, at least have an idea of. So how do we get back to the original reading? External evidence. One principle that helps us to recover the original wording is something called external evidence. External evidence is trying to find out which reading comes from the most reliable sources. Those most reliable sources would be the Greek manuscripts, other versions, um, those other languages of manuscripts, um, Georginian, uh, Georginian, Gothic, uh, Gothic uh, Coptic, all those other things, and quotations from the church fathers. So most of the manuscript sources can be grouped into three basic families or text types. Uh, they're grouped by different readings that um, have certain, um, that come from certain families and certain groups of manuscripts. So back to my example earlier, Jeremy follows my copies, George follows his copies, they all have the same reading, and all those scribes are now sort of in a font family. Um, so it's a certain text type. So what are the three main manuscript families, uh, text, text families, text types? Again, we're thinking about how textual criticism uh, gets back to the original reading. The first main manuscript family is the Alexandrian text. The Alexandrian text represents a majority of papyri. Um, papyri, uh, that's papyrus. A papyrus is a material that the early writings would have been written on, um, a sort of paper bag-like material. Um, again, the Alexandrian text represents the majority of papyri, those main early manuscripts, um, and the Coptic versions, which are the Egyptian um, Arabic versions, and the important Alexandrian church fathers. Those are all in the Alexandrian text family. Um, it's actually considered the most uh, reliable um, text, text family. The second is the Western text family. Um, the Western text is represented by 5th century manuscripts, the Old Latin, the Old Syriac, and a few other sources. So scholars still debate the origin of and, and the value of the Western family. Um, and most are hesitant to even accept readings that have only Western resources. These usually had more additions uh, than the Alexandrian because they would sort of add on to um, usually in that, font, in that text family. The last is the Byzantine family. So again, we're talking about the three main manuscript families that scholars and textual critics use to try to determine the original. Alexandrian, Western, Byzantine. The Byzantine text represents a majority of minuscule manuscripts. By minuscule, I don't mean tiny. Um, what I mean by minuscule is that most of these manuscripts contain commentaries and intros to the four Gospels. That's just common in the Byzantine text. So again, the Byzantine text has a major, I'm sorry, um, has had a major, what What did I write? The Byzantine text has a majority of the minuscule text and most of the later church fathers. So the Byzantine text, a majority of minuscule, they have a lot of intros and commentaries, and they have most of the later church fathers in the Byzantine text family. Okay. So using primarily those three main manuscript families, when textual critics are doing historical textual criticism, they have three principles in mind that help them to get back to the original wording. So looking at these, this is what they're doing. One, 
They prefer the reading that comes from the oldest manuscripts, which makes sense. It's closer to the original. Two, they usually prefer the reading that comes from manuscript sources that are spread out geographically. Now, uh, the idea of that geographically widespread reading is more likely to be the original rather than readings that are preserved to only one location. So, um, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Good point. Right. True. Good point. Very good point, Larry. Thank you. Okay, so ge geographical location. Um, all right, so let me see. I'm going to give an example of this because this is important. Um, let's say I, I have a text, or I'm, I'm a scribe. I write a text, and it says that John was baptized in water. Um, let's say Justin has a text that says that John was baptized in water. And let's say uh, Peter has a text that says John was baptized in water. We're all spread out. We're, we're, on, we're in different regions. That's uh, prefer, preferred over um, Will, Joy, and Alex having a text that says John was baptized in water. Why? Because our text being in different regions is more likely to have been influenced by a standardized text that had more widespread, um, far-reaching, you, you see what I'm saying? It, it was more far-reaching. Rather than a group that's only in this certain area that has a text that says John was baptized in water. One is just preferred over the other. Um, you can see why. Um, another example of this, um, let's say a state farm rep is walking down the street and he comes to your door and he knocks and he says, hey, State Farm is given free car insurance for a year. You say, wow, that's amazing. That's dope. Let's do it. <laughs> You're going to talk to your wife or your spouse or your friend. You say, hey, we're going to get free car, car insurance for a year. It's a rep. That rep is from, let's say, the Winter Garden location. And he says, the Winter Garden locations are given free insurance for a year. And you say, okay, cool. That sounds great. But you go online and you check it out and you see that uh, the Windermere locations aren't given free insurance for a year. The Kissimmee locations aren't given free insurance for a year. The Apopka locations woo -woo, aren't given free insurance for a year. None of these other locations are given free insurance for a year. It's only the Winter Garden location. You start to maybe question whether that's true or not because you're weighing it against the majority text um, or the majority of the state farms, for example here. But let's say that Apopka is giving free insurance and Windermere and Heathrow and Kissimmee and all these other locations. Then you start, you go online, you're looking at them, you say, yeah, they get free insurance. They get free insurance. Your confidence is being built based off of the fact that this, these are stores all over Central Florida and they're giving free insurance for a year. Does that, I'm, I'm trying to give an example of this, why they would be um, preferred over localized texts generally uh, regional widespread text versus localized text. That's my example. I was at my computer last night, and I thought, I thought it was good. I hope it helps. <laughs> Going on. <laughs> I know, that's like, a, I don't even have State Farm Insurance. I should have said Geico or something. I don't know. Okay, um, the third point that textual critics are looking at, um, textual critics also have a principle that says, 
prefer the reading that is supported by the biggest number of text types. In other words, it's important to have a lot of manuscripts, a lot of versions in different languages, and a lot of quotes from the church fathers before you can say our particular manuscript family holds to a particular reading. Okay, so those three points, um, important to keep in mind. Well, my last point here, internal evidence. So that was external evidence. This is now internal evidence. Um, the basic principle of internal evidence is that the reading from which the other readings could most easily come from is probably the original. Okay, so going back, <clears throat> uh, external, prefer the reading that comes from the oldest manuscripts, um, prefer the reading that comes from manuscript sources that are widespread, and um, prefer the reading that is supported by the biggest number of texts. They're doing that, but they're also doing this internally. Uh, this principle of um, other readings, um, reading from, sorry, the, ba the basic principle of internal evidence is that the readings from which the other readings could most easily come are probably the original. This is what that means. One, the shorter reading is preferred since scribes most often add it to the text rather than taking away words. The shorter reading is preferred since scribes most often or more often add it to the text rather than taking away words. Okay? Again, as I go through these, if you have questions, write them, drop them in the box, because you probably will have questions. Um, two, we're looking at internal evidence. This is what text, textual critics are doing, internal evidence. Two, the most difficult reading is preferred. Why? Because scribes usually change a difficult text to make it easier rather than trying to make an easy text more difficult. Okay? Therefore, the more difficult reading is probably the correct reading. Not always, but probably. Three, the reading that best fits the author's style uh, and dictation is preferred. So if you're looking at John, uh, the reading that looks more like John's writing style is probably the one that we're going to go with. This is pretty much how they're thinking as textual critics. Four, the reading that best fits the context is preferred. Again, these are basic principles for trying to get back to the original reading. Four, the reading that best fits the context is preferred. And then uh, lastly, five, a reading that disagrees with the parallel passage is more likely to be original rather than a reading that harmonizes the parallels. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, Text me, email me, I will send these to you. Um, <laughs> but, okay. A reading that disagrees with a parallel passage, probably should put these up here, sorry. A reading that disagrees with a parallel passage is more likely to be the original rather than a reading that harmonizes the parallels. Why? Because some scribes, in wanting to be helpful, they would harmonize parallel passages so that it would cause less confusion for its readers. But this is the job of textual critics. Their job is to look at the evidence and say, although this manuscript harmonizes with parallel passages, we're going to go with the manuscripts that are older, are found more widely, and are more reliable sources. We're going to go with those over and above the reading that is 
less reliable, from a less reliable manuscript family, although it harmonizes and paints a more user-friendly picture of Jesus and the Gospels for the reader. This is to be commended, not criticized. This is textual criticism. It is the discipline that allows us to say with more confidence that what we have is reliable. They're not just trying to harmonize or get texts that harmonize with each other. They're trying to get to the original. That's what their job is, okay? In closing, modern textual criticism has been turned into something that looks at the variants or differences in the copies and tries to allow them to stand alone and tell their own story as far as describe the culture, the region, how we lived, whatnot. But historical textual criticism deals with the manuscripts and variants and tries to determine the original wording. That is historical textual criticism. Many modern textual critics make the copies the end, but historical textual criticism views the copies not as the end, but the means to the end. And what is that end? The original reading, the inerrant and inspired word of God. Amen. <laughs>